how would you celebrate the greatest accomplishment of your life? What would you do after you had uh, climbed your highest mountain or completed your greatest achievement? How would you celebrate the greatest accomplishment of your life? Have you ever thought about that? Might it be something like this? Can we play the video, please? Saints are celebrating your first Super Bowl win. What are you going to do next? I'm going to Disney World. You ever seen that? You remember seeing that? In the late 80s, Disney World and Disneyland started a very, very uh, successful campaign. I'm going to Disneyland. I'm going to Disney World. And they got Super Bowl winners, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, basketball, NBA champs. And they would catch them right after they had just completed on the field. And they would say, what are you going to do next? And they would answer, I'm going to Disneyland. Of course, for us, San Diegans, this might be the closest we ever get to Super Bowl there. Drew Brees, former San Diego Charger. So I apologize if that drives in the wound a little bit. But have you ever considered what you would do after you had completed or successfully made your biggest achievement of your life? What would you do? Go to Disneyland? Would you go to Disneyland? How would you celebrate your biggest achievement, the pinnacle of your life? That's exactly what we've been looking at and what we'll ask of the prophet Elijah. We've been studying in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18, and we find Elijah essentially winning the Super Bowl of all prophets. Turn in your Bibles, please, the book of Eli uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, as we find Elijah on this great battlefield. We studied uh, the last couple of weeks. We've been uh, dialoguing with Elijah, trying to understand what God has in store for us today through his word in the book of 1 Kings. And in chapter 18, we find Elijah essentially at the pinnacle of his, uh, of his work as a prophet. There it is. For those of you that were with us last week, this would just be a review. And if you just happen to join us, uh, allow me to catch you up kind of quickly. We're in chapter 18. It's a story that you might be familiar with, a scene that you might recall uh, perhaps from your childhood days in uh, Sabbath school. Perhaps at, uh, during grade school at the academy, you may have learned it. Or somehow you remember this Mount Carmel experience. So here's what happened. Elijah shows up in the scene, chapter 17 of the book of 1 Kings. And he says, his first act, prophetic act, he goes before the king and he says, there will be no rain unless I say so. Drops the mic and walks out and disappears for three and a half years. Three and a half years, the king is looking for him all over. No one can find him. Meanwhile, the rains dry up and the dew dries up. And when there's no dew, everything dies. No water, no dew, everything dies. And the land suffered a great famine and people were in distress. Meanwhile, prophet Elijah was living by the grace of God and the faithfulness of a widow and her young son. And after three years, God comes, three and a half, God comes to Elijah. The Bible tells us in chapter 18, and the word of God said to Elijah, go and present yourself to the king because I'm going to make it rain. Yeah, did you know God originated that phrase? It's true. I'm going to make it rain. And so Elijah shows up again. He appears from nowhere and says, go get King Ahab because it's going to rain. 
And, and King Ahab shows up and he says, ah, there you are. You've been making trouble for us. And Elijah says, not me. It's your fault. All of this is your fault. But now let's settle the score. You recall we talked about this last week. And he says, bring all the people, the Israelites, who were the descendants of the tribes of Israel, the Israelites, who were essentially the, 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 the inheritors of the promise God had made at Mount Sinai long before when they had come out of Egypt. And he says to them, gather on Mount Carmel and bring those prophets of Baal, those, those prophets of the ideas and beliefs that you've been following, and we will settle this one since for all. You remember the story here. This is the Super Bowl scene, and Elijah, as a prophet, calls the people, and their spectators are watching, and he puts uh, on one side the prophets of Baal, and on the other side, he, he, he stands against them. It's one versus 850. This is a real Cinderella story, or an underdog, a true Rudy, a biblical Rudy. I don't know if you get that reference, but you might. And the Bible tells us, essentially, Elijah says, there are 850 of you representing Baal and Asherah and all those ideas, but only I stand before God. And so he stands and he says, you make an altar. I'm going to summarize quickly. And, and I'll make an altar. You put a, a sacrifice, an offering there, and I will put one, but we will not light the fire. And then we'll each pray. And whoever, whichever God answers by fire, that's how we'll know the true God. And everyone says, sounds good. Spectators, all of Israel is there. They say, okay, let's see this happen. And the battle begins. And Elijah says, you guys go first. And uh, we, we, we read this last week. Um, they sacrificed to put uh, uh, the, the bull on the sacrifice, and, and they put the wood, but they didn't light the fire. And they began to chant and, and call upon the name of Baal. And the louder they called, the more ridiculous it seemed. For the first three hours of the day, from nine to noon, they chanted and chanted and chanted, but nothing happened. The Bible says no one answered. And about noon, Elijah began to poke fun at them. You remember this from last week? Elijah said, uh, maybe you guys should yell louder. Perhaps your God needs to be awakened. Maybe he's taking a nap. Uh, maybe he's busy in thought. You know, he might be occupied. Maybe he's on a trip. He forgot that you guys were having this thing, and he just didn't show up. You guys should text him or something. Let him know he's missing out. And he begins to mock them and ridicule them, and they got louder and louder all day. And the Bible tells us that by the time of the evening sacrifice, quite possibly 5 or 6 p.m., Elijah says, okay, okay, we've seen enough. And he steps into the limelight. It's fantastic. I don't know. I was telling you all, I told you the last two weeks, this is why pastors fantasize about being like Elijah. He's, he's the pastor's idol for sure, because he steps into the the spotlights and he says, all right, we're going to settle this once and for all. How long are you people going to waver between two opinions? You're hot, you're cold, you're yes, you're no, you're constantly changing your mind. Let's settle this once and for all. If God is God, let's follow him. But if Baal is God, then fine, let's follow him. And so he sets up this moment, this, this climactic moment, and he says, all right, you guys have had your turn, my turn. And then he has them pour water over the sacrifice three times. And he prays this prayer. This is uh, chapter 18, the book of First Kings. And it says, O Lord, this is Elijah, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God. And, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things because you commanded me. So answer me, O Lord, so that the people will know that you are God, and that you are turning their hearts back to you. Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. 
we're going to settle this once and for all. And then he speaks to God and he says, answer me, O God, so that everyone will know that you are once and for all God, but also so that the people might know that I am your servant. And obviously this fantastic moment, the fire comes from heaven and it burns up the sacrifice. It even burns up the rocks. Everything is consumed and it, and it burns a hole in the ground and licks up the water that had pulled in the trench there. And, and if we were there with cameras, this is the moment where confetti would start falling down. Because <laughs> the people said, oh, wow, that really is God. It's like, it's like the moment. And they began to bow down and began to worship God. And, and the Bible tells us that Elijah says, he looks at the prophets of Baal who suddenly have been unmasked for their foolishness. They've been chanting and raving to an inanimate object that cannot answer and will not answer, not then and not now. And Elijah says, seize them. And he gets them slaughtered. All 850. And this is the moment, I know it's kind of gruesome, but where confetti comes down. And the cameras point to Elijah. And they said, Elijah, you've just won the Super Bowl of all prophets. You have literally defeated Baal with fire. Come on, come on. Fire from heaven. And you have slaughtered them all. What are you going to do next? Naturally, you might say, well, what can you do after that? Like, what would, you, what would you do after that? After bringing down, what's next? What could you possibly do next? Perhaps Disneyland. This is what Elijah does. Elijah says to Ahab, the king, and he says, listen, go and eat and drink because rain is coming. They haven't seen rain in three and a half years. And Ahab says, okay, and he goes. But Elijah instead goes back up the mountain. And he bends down to the ground and begins to pray. And he tells his servant, go look towards the sea and tell me what you see. And the servant says, I see nothing. And he sends him back seven times. And the seventh time, the servant says, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising up from the sea. And Elijah says, aha. Uh -huh. Go tell Ahab, hike up your turrets and get down the mountain unless the rain stops you. And, and, and Elijah had promised there would be no rain until he says so. And now he's praying. So there's an even greater testament to his, to his prophecy. It's coming true. And he says, God, let it rain. And God sends a cloud and, the, and it's about to rain. And the Bible tells us that, 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 that the king hikes up, puts, it, puts in his chariot, gets ready. And, and, and meanwhile, the sky, this is verse 45, chapter 18, the sky grew black with clouds and the winds rose and the heavy rains came on. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel, which is where the king's palace was. And look at this, verse 46. And the power of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucking in his cloak... He ran ahead of the horses all the way to Jezreel. So, <clears throat> he has made fire come down from heaven. Well, technically not him, but at his word and at his prayer, fire has come down from heaven. And now he has, at his prayer and his, at his request, he has caused rain to come upon the land after three and a half years. And suddenly he felt empowered and, 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 and strengthened. The Bible says that the Spirit of God came upon him and he grabbed the king's chariot and he ran ahead of the horses all the way to Jezreel, which uh, theologians tell us is about 16 miles. I don't know about you, but I can't really hardly run a mile. It hurts. 
but I can't imagine running 16. Those of you that are marathoners probably can. But in front of horses? Can you beat horses? Can you race horses? Elijah, the Bible says, and by the way, I don't know if you caught that, but it's late in the day already. It's late in the day. He's climbed up and down the mountain a couple of times for the sacrifice, down for the slaughter, back for the prayer, now back down. And now he's going to run 16 miles down to Jezreel. The Spirit of the Lord is empowering him to do these amazing things. It's like he's on a roll, a real significant prophetic roll. I mean, what else is he going to do next? And maybe Elijah's thinking, I've done it. Maybe he's holding that pose that, that all, you know, uh, sports athletes do at the end. Uh, Kobe Bryant did it on, on Monday night. Was it Wednesday night? When he's like, yes, number one. They put that one hand in the air as they're walking off the court like the confetti's falling. Number one. This is maybe Elijah's moment where he's done it all. He's prophesied fire from heaven. And by the way, in case you missed it because we didn't really read it, he actually brought somebody back from the dead. It's tucked away in there. That widow who was taking care of him, her son died, and Elijah said, Lord, don't let this be, and then he brought him back from the dead. I mean, Elijah is like, so he runs in front of these horses, the Bible tells us, and you would think that this would be his most confident moment, but when he gets to Jezreel, chapter 19, please follow along with me, because I don't want you to take my word for it. Follow along with me in your smartphones or, or the Bible that's right in front of you there in the pew. Chapter 19, the book of 1 Kings, and the Bible tells us that when Ahab got, to Je got home to Jezebel, he told her everything that Elijah had done. So Elijah is running 16 miles. Now it's, dar it's getting dark. The rain is coming, but Elijah... Was his little sandals and all tucked in his tunic, and he runs ahead and he makes it there. And Ahab is excited because he has just witnessed. I mean, wouldn't you be excited if you had just fire come from heaven? Anybody seen that, by the way? Anybody? No? Okay. Fire just came from heaven. <laughs> and Ahab's excited, and he gets in and he says, Jezebel, 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 you're not going to believe this. But she received him like every wife receives a husband who comes home late with a story to tell. <laughs> y'all, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Oh, no, no, where have you been? And, and oh, no, no, you're not going to believe this, this thing. And then there was fire. I mean, it does sound ridiculous. There was fire, and then this old man, and he slaughtered people, and, and he ran all the way. Uh-huh. She's thinking, mm-hmm. Have you ever been there? You can identify. And Ahab tells the queen, Jezebel, he says, you're not going to believe this. The fire came from heaven. God answered. And, 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 then, and then the prophet said, slaughter all these false prophets. And he did. They slaughtered all of them. And, and there's, there's a little bit of excitement in Ahab's voice because it's as if God is giving him a chance, listen carefully, to reclaim his inheritance. See, Ahab was king because he was supposed to lead his people back towards God. But he had abandoned that path. He had fallen for the trap of Baal, for these other ideas, for these other pursuits. But it was like God was helping him, recalling him, as, as Elijah had said, turning the hearts back. And Ahab comes to his wife and he says, honey, you're not going to believe this. And Jezebel answers like all Jezebels answer. She doesn't say, oh, that's nice. She doesn't say, oh, honey, I'm so happy for you. No, by the way, ladies, that's what we want to hear. <laughs> when, when, uh, when we get home late with the story, we want you to say, oh, I so believe you. 
I'm sorry you had to go through that. Wow, what an ordeal. I'm glad you're home. That's, that's uh, by the way, in case you want to, I know none of y'all going to say that, but I'm just saying, like, if you could find it in your heart to have a little bit of mercy on us, that's what we want to hear. That's not what she says. Jezebel says, listen, <laughs> send a message to Elijah. May the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. She essentially says, may the gods strike me down if by this time tomorrow I don't do to you what you just did to my prophets. Jezebel was mad angry. She had been looking for Elijah for three and a half years because she was convinced and had convinced, helped convince Ahab that it was Elijah's fault that all this bad stuff had happened. You know why? Because it's always easy to blame God or God's servant for the bad things in our lives. It's much harder to recognize, as Elijah pointed out, that sometimes it's our own fault. But nobody wants to hear that. And Jezebel said, it's been your fault and now I know where you are. I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to do to you what you did to my prophets. And what we would expect from someone who has just won the Super Bowl of all prophetic showdowns, who had made fire come down from heaven and rain come and who can outrun horses for 16 miles and can bring people back from the dead. What we'd expect from him is to say to her, right? Bring it on. For I serve the one true God. That's what we expect. We expect him to go, is that so? Let's see it. But you know what Elijah does? Uh, of course you know, but the Bible puts it very eloquently. And Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Can you believe that? If you can believe that, say amen. Amen. You know you can't believe that because that's exactly what you and I would do. Man, let's be honest. When Jezebel, or whoever the Jezebel is in your life, when she speaks these words, we run. And we run fast and far. You know, you walk in the door, you see the look. Oh, I forgot something in the car. And then you go and you, oh, I got to fix this. I'll be back. Who's afraid? Elijah is afraid. And she says, I'm going to do to you what you did to them. And Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. Of course, any man with any sense would say that, yeah, that's about right. That's what I would do too. But we don't expect that from Elijah, especially after he's won this greatest accomplishment of his life. His prophecy actually came true. God answered the prayer where he said, Prove that I am your servant. And God sent fire. And yet, when she threatens him, he runs. Baba says that he ran all the way to Beersheba, which is over 150 miles, close to 190 miles. It's a long way to run. Forget the 16 miles. He's like, that's nothing. <laughs> he ran all the way to Beersheba, and there he left his servant, poor guy. <laughs> And then he says, I'm going to go further. And he takes another day's journey into the desert. Once he's into the desert, he says, okay, now I'm not going to be easily found. And the Bible tells us that, that once he makes it into the desert, he comes to a broom tree. Verse 4, a day's journey into the desert. He comes to a broom tree and he sits under this tree and, and then he prayed that he might die. And he says, I had enough. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. 
I'm no better than my ancestors. He's running for his life, afraid of Jezebel, and finally he's so worn out, running hundreds of miles, and he gets under this tree, and he's like, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. Just get it over with. End it. I'm done. And this, this, uh, this, this phrase, I'm no better than my ancestors. See, when Elijah was called to serve as a prophet, he was called to represent God and to cast a rebuke, a reprimand, a correction upon his people, and yes, upon his ancestors. And he had been living this faithfully in, in a powerful way, but now faced with the Jezebel in his life, he turns tail and he runs, and he finally comes to this place, and he's like, I don't know what I was thinking that I tried to be your faithful servant. I'm no better than anyone else who's tried. I failed. And he says, I'm, I'm done. I've had enough. Just take my life, Lord. Let me die. It's a, it's a very interesting moment as you're watching this from an observer's point because he, he went from being so high here up on the mountain. I mean, think about it. Raining fire from to this lowest point in his life in a matter of days. But friends, isn't that similar to some of the things that you and I go through? That we can have these spiritual highs and then next thing you know, we're riding down low and saying things like, I don't, I've had enough. To me, it's fascinating because he basically says the same thing the widow said to him a few years ago when he said, trust God. And she said, no, <laughs> I've had enough. I'm just going to eat my little cake and I'm going to die. And now he's being just as dramatic, if not more. I'm done. I've had enough, Lord. I'm done with it. I'm tired. I can't do it. This isn't me. I thought I could do it. I thought I could be faithful to you. I thought I could live these things out, but I tried and I failed. I'm no good. I'm done. And he fell asleep into the deep sleep of depression and desperation. And the Bible tells us that after he had fallen asleep, an angel came because the presence of God had not left him. And an angel came and touched him and woke him up and he said, get up and eat. And Elijah looked around and there was by his head a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Fascinating, right? Fascinating because Elijah is running away from his task and from his job. And he's running as far as he can go. And yet he can't outrun God. And God finds him there. And what does he do, friends? He gives him food and water. Don't you think that's interesting? God had given him food and water through the ravens, but, but, but it's easy for us to give a credit to God here because we say, well, Elijah was doing things for you, so surely you're going to bless him. But in this moment, Elijah's doing nothing for God. And yet God still provides bread and water. Do you notice any hint of condemnation at that moment in those verses? Do you notice any disappointment from the heart of God at that moment? 
Bible says that the angel of the Lord came again a second time and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So Elijah got up, ate and drank, strengthened by a second helping of food, and he ran an additional 40 days and 40 nights. I just find this fascinating. Angel God wakes him up and he says, you're really trying to get away, aren't you? Well, here, let me give you some food. It's, it's going to take you a while to run. So here, let me help you out. Fascinating, don't you think? See, what God is trying to show to Elijah and then to us is that no matter the circumstances, top of Mount Carmel or underneath a broom tree, God will always be there. And he doesn't love you more on top of the mountain than under the tree. Because his love is always the same. And he comes to Elijah and he says, you don't yet understand my heart. I'll wait for you. You still got a ways to go before you're ready to listen. So let me give you some food. Friends, he provides for us even when we're running away from him. Isn't that just amazing? And Elijah ran, probably not as quickly as before, an additional <clears throat> 40 days and 40 nights, this time to, through some, uh, uh, some difficult terrain. He may have gone slowly until he got to the mountain of God, which is what the Bible tells us. He got up and drank, strengthened by the food, traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And while he was in this cave, and, and, and I'm not sure exactly why he picked this location, but why he was in this cave, the word of the Lord came to him. And this is a special phrase because it precedes everything that Elijah has been doing up until this scene. See, when he showed up at the king's courts, when he went to the widow, when he came back for the rain and on Mount Carmel, it was like this. And the word of the Lord came and then Elijah did that. So he went. The thing is, when Elijah showed up and, and Jezebel made this threat, God didn't say, run, Elijah, run. Elijah ran on his own. The word of the Lord did not come to him to run. Elijah ran on his own. So it's clear from the biblical narrative that Elijah was not doing what God had intended him to do until finally Elijah could run no more. And then the word of the Lord came to him. And in the cave, God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, still reeling from his run of days now, of days, months, Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. In other words, I've been working hard for you, God Almighty, but the Israelites have rejected your covenant, they've broken down your altars, and they put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And somebody in the background was playing a violin. Maybe the world's tiniest violin. There's so many things in that statement that tell us the state of his mind. He is afraid, embarrassed. He's defending himself, but he's also pointing a finger at God. Do you understand? He says, I've been working so hard for you, and this is what I get. And then he says, I'm the only one left. It's a... It's a fascinating comment because 
because the people have just turned their hearts back to God. They literally killed all the prophets of Baal and they bow down, and, but Elijah refuses to accept that. He says, Lord, they, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. That was true in the past, but that's why we did the whole mountain of Carmel thing. And, and Elijah says, no, and they've turned down your altars and they're trying to kill everyone and I'm the only one left. See, here's the fascinating thing about Elijah's state of mind. When we become so self-focused, we do start to believe that we're the only ones left. We begin to zero in on our trials, on our own fears, and the things that are challenging us, and we become narrow-minded, and we think this is only happening to us. Right, friends? And Elijah says, look what I'm getting. I've worked so hard. I've been very zealous for the Lord. I've worked so hard. But now they're trying to kill me too. And I'm the only one left. And God said, you're not ready. So go out and stand in front of the mountain. I'm about to pass by. What a cool, cool statement there. God says, go stand out there. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass by. I'm going to pass by. Do you want God to pass by? Would you be interested in God passing by the cave you've been hiding in? And Elijah goes, and the Bible tells us that there is a great, powerful wind that tore the mountains apart. I, the wind that comes through and splits the mountains. And, 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 and the Bible says that this wind uh, uh, would shatter the rocks, but God was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. The earth shook. And this massive display of earthly power. But God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came fire. But God was not in the fire. And after the fire, there came a gentle whisper. A still, small voice. And when Elijah heard that still, small voice... He pulled his cloak over his face and he recognized, now this is the word of God. And he moves forward in the cave and God speaks to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, more quiet, less angry, but with the same answer. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I've been working really hard for you. But the Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death, and I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. God is really wrestling with Elijah's heart here. The power of God has been on display. God's might was on display and now it's shown before him. And Elijah still wrestling with the true nature of God. And God says, it's not in the fire. It's not in the earthquake. It's not in the wind. But let me just speak to you. Let me share my heart. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I'm the only one, God. I'm the only one. Nobody else cares. And I've been working hard for you, but all I get for that is trouble. And God speaks to Elijah and he says, go back the way that you came. You know what that means? It means you're not supposed to be here. Return. Turn around and go back. Go back the way that you came. 
and go to the desert. And when you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram, and also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. There is this great moment in the battle for Elijah's heart there in this cave. See, on display in Mount Carmel was, was God's awesome answering power, but it was for the hearts of the people. Elijah was convinced that he understood the heart of God, but it's clearly evidenced by his journey into the desert and into the mountain of God. He did not. So you have here this greatest biblical prophet who, who, who is on the mountaintop winning the biggest battle, and yet he fails to understand and capture the heart of God. And so he runs away when faced with Jezebel's threats. And finally God has to get him and say, do you even understand what I'm trying to do? See, he had prayed this prayer up on the mountain. God, answer me with fire so that the people would know that you are turning their hearts back to you. But God was actually trying to win his heart. God was actually trying to help him understand what his real purpose in life was, what the ultimate goal was. And Elijah in the cave had become convinced that God's goal was the earthquake and the fire and the wind. That God's method was power and judgment and destruction. But no, friends, God's method is in the still, small whisper. It's in the voice. It's in the heart-to-heart. -heart. It's in the personal contact that God makes and says, what are you doing here? And when finally Elijah's ready to listen, this is what God tells him to do. Go back. Go back and anoint Elijah to succeed you as prophets. Do you know what that means? You know what it means? It means that God's ultimate goal for Elijah's life was not to make fire come down on Mount Carmel. That was just an experience to give him courage to do what God really wanted him to do. You know what it was? To anoint Elisha. See, friends, what we sometimes forget is that God's tasks upon us here on earth is to create a generational succession of blessing. It is a task that we have been given from the very beginning. God said to Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply, fill the earth. We were tasked to receive the blessings of God and then continually create generations that loved and honored God. It is why he called the people of Israel. It is why he brought them to Mount Sinai. It's why he said, from now on, this will establish our covenant. It's one of the reasons why some generations could not go into the promised land because they did not understand this and God had to raise up a new one. And here in the voice of Elijah, in, the li in Elijah's life, God is saying to him, Yes, you are supposed to challenge the, 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 the bales in, in the, and you're supposed to bring these things down. But ultimately, it's for the sake of growing a new generation that believes in me. You know why, friends? Because our time on earth has a limit. And it is not all about us. Look at this. God says to Elijah, anoint Elisha because... 
He says, Jehu will put to death who escaped the word of Azel, and Elisha will put to death and who escaped the word of Jehu. Listen to this. Because I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. He says, you think you're the only one, but I reserve for myself an entire new generation of people who will follow me. You think you're the only one that's doing these things and you poo-poo this and woe is me. But God says, but I have reserved. And your task, your ultimate task is to empower them and bless them. You know why I'm telling you this, friends? Because I'm convinced that that is our unique opportunity as the Bonita Valley Seventh-day Adventist Church. At this time, in this space. I believe that God has given us a unique opportunity to see what God is trying to teach here to Elijah. That the power of God is available, yes. That the power of God can strike down altars that you have erected if you allow him. That he can answer by fire, yes. But that his ultimate goal is to win the hearts of the generations for his glory. Especially for us, the hearts of each new generation. That we are blessed with. I think it is our ultimate purpose in this season as our story grows. Listen, do you see that group of people who just sang here? That's a dream come true for us. Did you notice that? That we, the Bonita Valley Church, would have a group of young adults, college students, and young professionals praising the name of God. See, our ultimate goal isn't to claim victories for ourselves. Our ultimate goal is to claim victories for Christ so that we might empower others to do the same. And we have been tasked here, like God tasked Elijah, to anoint our successors. Elijah's greatest accomplishment was simply an opportunity for God to say, now that you have done that, you have the experience to share. But your ultimate goal is to raise up a new prophet. Can you believe that? That's what he says. What are you doing here? Elijah's, woe is me, I didn't do this. You didn't, and God says, what are you doing? What you're supposed to be doing is raising up a new prophet. Our task isn't to win glories for ourselves. This is a God battle. He deserves the glory. And the way we create the blessings for the generations is to always look and bless and empower those that will come after us. We do not own this place. We do not own our time. We do not own ourselves. We are merely stewards and managers. And it has been our task, specifically in this community, to recognize that and to understand that our time is finite. And that we must, we must raise up generations that will come after us, even now, right after us, who will also lift up the name of God. And when we start looking that way, then we will stop needing tiny violins for every one of our complaints. When we start looking at the people right around us that God has given us and blessed us with, that we can entrust God's grace with, that we can entrust God's blessings with, then we will start com stop complaining about what we have received or not received or how difficult it has or hasn't been. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? I'm fully convinced that what we must do as a church community is recognize these opportunities. Some of us, 
For some of us, it's easy. We have children, and you know this. But for others of us, sometimes it's more difficult to think. But I want you to understand that we as a church community aren't, shouldn't just be concerned with our own personal children, but every young life in the community is our child. We belong to one another. A church is the family that you choose, not the one that you were born into. And every young person here, every collegiate student, everyone who is, comes after you in a story of life, has an opportunity to be blessed by you. And you don't have to be an expert of, at anything, by the way. You just have to share what you know. And every victory that God has allowed you to live like Elijah is just an opportunity to have something to share, to encourage and empower the next generation. So God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And we must ask ourselves the same question. Friends, what are we doing here? Are we here today because we want God to know that we've tried and tried and nothing's working and I'm done with it? Are we here because we want God to answer powerfully in some way to validate our point of view and our opinion and our status? Or are we here to listen to the true heart of God? And if we are, this is what God is saying. I've entrusted something with you. And I want you to anoint your successor. I want you to raise up a new generation. For I have yet reserved many who have not bowed down to Baal or kissed his name. What a marvelous opportunity. Imagine if you and I could capture this. We have been trying in pockets and places. And what we see here today is evidence of that. And we praise God for that. But what if we all, in our own way, wherever we are, in whatever abilities, whatever experiences we've had, what if we each decided that we were going to be alert to whom God has placed in our life that we might bless, encourage, and release for his glory? What if we, each of us, could in our own world, in our, where you work, with whom you, you share a home with, wherever you are in your life, what if there we could have eyes open to see whom God has chosen? See, Elijah doesn't choose Elisha. God tells him. But Elijah must now decide if he is going to live out his true purpose or stay in the cave, bullied by the thoughts of uh, failure and rejection and the threats of the Jezebels. And I say to you and I, my friends, let's not do that. Let's not stay hidden in the cave because we have evidence of God's power. We have it here in our church. You and I have stories where God has sent fire from heaven, where he has, when he has answered our prayers. Yes, there's been difficult times, but God has been faithful. We have those testimonies. But now let's not hide in this cave, afraid of failing, afraid of, of, of threats. Let's step out from the cave and follow the still small voice of God who says, find somebody and make them disciples. That's our task. It's always been. Go into all the world, find someone and teach them everything that I have taught you. Don't judge them. Don't condemn them. God doesn't do that to you. Don't do it to them. Instead, God says, love them as I have loved you.
What are you doing here? What are you doing here? 